Amen. Well, it happens every year because every year those first grade teachers, they have a unique challenge that they face. And this year was no different because Miss Smith immediately saw Trevor over there packing up his backpack at lunchtime. And Miss Smith had to go over to poor little Trevor and say, oh, Trevor, it's not quite time to pack our backpack up yet. We're heading out to lunch now. Head out to lunch with all your friends and then we're gonna come back and, and we'll have a little bit more work to do when we come back. Because you see those little first graders when they come in, it's a tough transition for them. They have been enjoying for an entire year half day school and all of a sudden we switched it on them. Well, Trevor is none too happy when Miss Smith comes over and says that to him. And in fact, he puts his hands on his hips in disbelief. He thinks she's kidding, maybe. And he says, oh, well, who in the world signed me up for this program, Miss Smith? <laughs> well, after today, you might be saying that about becoming a Christian. Because there are some things, when we get saved, when we become a Christian, we become part of the family of God, that Jesus asks us to do that we just don't expect. And we think, well, who in the world signed us up for this program? I mean, when you read your Bible, you see a lot of things right away. Uh, surely, when he said we're supposed to forgive 70 times, seven times, he couldn't possibly have meant that. Or what about turning the other cheek? Always. How about that little verse, uh, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Or one of our personal favorites, submit to your husband in everything. Hmm. But honestly, I think the hardest one is in Luke 9.23. Because in Luke 9.23, Jesus tells us that we have to take up our cross. We gotta take that uh, execution rack and strap it right onto our back and live with all the ramifications of what that means. But we're thinking, wait a minute. Who signed us up for this? Aren't I on the winning team? Am I not supposed to be safe forever? Yes, yes you are. But not now and not here and not yet. If you saw your title, you will see that we're teaching on living under pressure and what to do when you're struggling. Namely, the struggle of being opposed because you have pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ. We're not talking about, you know, someone's sick or whatever. We're talking about you're being persecuted because you say you're a Christian. It's exactly what's happening to Thessalonians here. And as we see, Paul is gonna have a boatload of helpful suggestions for them. Um, he's not going to be helping them traverse this without pain, per se. But maybe, getting through it with a measure of hope. I mean, that's, that's how he's gonna help us, trying to get through this as unscathed as possible. Let's see what he has to say to us in 1 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse one. Paul says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. 
just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. These people are suffering through some rugged persecution. They're scorned, they're misunderstood, they're shunned, they're beaten, they're disowned. They're cut off from their livelihood and a myriad of other things. They're under pressure in their home, in their neighborhood, on the job, everywhere they go because they named the name of Christ. And this was not new to them. They had actually watched Paul and Silas stumble into town after they'd experienced that beat down and imprisonment in Philippi just a few days beforehand. And then they saw them rush out of town to avoid the same thing in Thessalonica. Well, these missionaries, they were eager to spread the gospel, of course. They were ready to move on to the next town because they wanted to keep going and sharing with more people. But they were, as we've said, disappointed that they couldn't spend more time with the Thessalonians and ground them, especially because they knew what was coming for them. They were sure that persecution and suffering would be following behind them. So Paul wants to help them navigate this affliction, in particular, the best that he can. And he is going to help us, too, the next time it's our head on the chopping block. He wants to give us help and hope for our next bit of suffering. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul has been without news of the Thessalonians for a while now, more than he could stand. He gets to the point where there's so much radio silence, he makes a decision and he makes a plan. And in verse one, he's gonna tell us what it is. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. He couldn't endure the not knowing anymore because he loved them. He wanted to make sure they were okay, even though he knew they were in pain and suffering. And that reminds us that even when we're in the midst of persecution, that God always supplies someone to care for us. We just have to open our eyes and see them. And we need to be available to the input and the love and the guidance and the help that they are there to offer us. And that's where we're going in point number one. When you're living under pressure, you need to be open to the input of others. Be open to the input of others. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were filled with righteous anxiety over the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians. They were worried in the most godly and God-honoring way for these people. They were afraid that they might lose ground. They were afraid that they might defect and they wanted to rush in to keep that from happening. Paul is actually beside himself. He is so upset about this and this is why he is willing, he says, to be left alone in Athens. And you can tell how much he really loves them when you look at the word alone that they use there. Because that word alone is the same word that we use when we talk about you will leave your parents' house and cleave to your spouse. As much as you love your parents, there is a definite divide that happens when this new family is birthed. There's a separation that will never be the same because of it. It's also the word alone. Same word is used when you're talking about the death of a loved one and the intense loss that takes place. This is the word Paul chooses. I was willing to be left alone. He's willing to take the hit like that, like losing a loved one to death because he loves them more than he loves himself. 
So he's willing to send Timothy out. And that's a great reminder in and of itself. I mean, of course we love those within the walls of our home. Of course we care about their spiritual welfare. We tirelessly work to tee the ball up so that someday they'll surrender their lives to Christ. But do we feel anything close to that about someone outside our home and their spiritual welfare? Do we love them and where they're at with Jesus Christ like Paul did? We're willing to do anything to help them become Christians and walk with Christ. You see, Paul was deeply concerned for these people. He was as concerned as you are for the people who share your address. Jesus loves you, and 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 you. And he wants you to take care of her. He wants you to watch out for her. He wants you to track her down when she's going down the wrong road. He loves us that much. And he's given us each other to love that much. Like Paul loved them. Especially because in moments of weakness, that's when we're most vulnerable, aren't we, to taking the wrong road, taking the path, the path of least resistance and potentially getting into worse trouble. That's how Paul loves these people. That's why he's rushing Paul, uh, Titus, excuse me, Timothy in there. He desperately wants to keep them out of the ditch and he shares no blood with them and actually no significant history. He's only been with them a few weeks, but he loves them this much. He's willing to take the hit personally and do ministry by himself. And you think, yeah, but this is the apostle Paul, come on. Like, how hard is it for him to be alone? Well, I want you to remember where he is and who he is, where he is. He's in Athens. This is where uh, the intellectual elite sit. He's going to be debating the most powerful philosophers of the time. This is super intimidating. And then think of him. Now, you're well taught. You're well taught even in this Bible study. We've studied lots of Paul's letters. Do you remember how he's described in person? He's described in person as being not so much. He's described in person as being fearful and trembling. Oh yes, in his letters, he's powerful and bold, but not face to face. And he's being left alone to debate the world leaders and philosophers. He paid a high price because he loved them. It reminds us what, what are we willing? What are we willing to give up and sacrifice for the Thessalonians in our lives to keep them from crashing and burning and to be there to help them? Well, Paul was willing to send his first stringer, Timothy. And in verse two, he almost gives us Timothy's resume and we kind of wonder why. Well, we get the impression in scripture that Timothy's not always taken that seriously. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, 10, it says, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. It's probably because he's younger, probably in his teens at this point. And this is actually his first trip. The trip to go to Thessalonica was when they picked him up on the way. He was very young, and yet, the Bible's clear in Acts 16, it tells us that he was spoken well of in his hometown. He had a good reputation among his own people that would know him the best, right? And uh, Paul certainly respects him 
as he proves by sending him out on this important ministry to go see his beloved Thessalonians and make sure they're okay. In Philippians 2.20, Paul says of him, I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was perfectly qualified for this job. But let's face it, it probably wasn't his age or lack of experience that people didn't like about him. They just didn't want it to be him. They wanted to see the Apostle Paul coming to visit them. And you know exactly what that feels like. Because if you're in the hospital or your kid's in the hospital, who do you want visiting you? Someone on the pastoral team, right? You don't want someone from the care team showing up. It shouldn't matter. Those people are perfectly qualified to care for and love us. That's what Paul's trying to say. Timothy is well qualified. He can strengthen and he can comfort these people. He is valuable. In fact, he says here, he's my fellow worker, but he says he's God's co-worker. That's who he describes him. That means he's partnering with God to take care of you. That makes him valuable, even if his resume does not meet your expectations. Paul wanted to come, but God needed him to go toe-to-toe with the most important philosophers of the time. And Timothy was perfectly suited to do the other job. And that's why he was sent. Well, John Mark had just recently abandoned them. We don't know exactly why, we're not told. We know he's young too, although Timothy is younger. Um, John Mark left. Maybe it's because the work was too hard. Maybe it's because he didn't like being away from mommy and daddy. Maybe it's because he thought it was too dangerous. We don't know, but he bailed. And here's Timothy, ready to step up, eager, out of pat, I'm here. He's ready to do the job. And so is the person who's reaching out to you when you're in pain. The person who's texting you, talking to you, seeking you out. They love you and they're qualified for the job. Embrace the love that God gives you through the person that he has standing right in front of you when you're living under pressure. Joyful embrace that help that God gives you, or you might end up like the guy in the flood. You've probably heard the story before, but the guy in the flood who's up on his roof and he's praying, oh God, save me, there's a flood, save me. God, please, I trust you. And pretty soon a rowboat comes up to the house and uh, the rowboat driver says, jump in, I'll save you. And he says, no, no, I trust God. He's gonna save me. And the rowboat goes away and pretty soon the the water's up past the porch. And then a, a, a motorboat drives up and says, jump in, I'll save you. And he goes, no, 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 I trust God, he's gonna save me. Motorboat goes away, okay, now the water's to the second floor. And then a helicopter flies over, right? The guy drops the rope, grab the rope, I'll save you, I'll pull you to safety. He says, no, 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 I trust God. I trust God, he's gonna save me. Thanks anyway. And the helicopter goes away. Pretty soon the water crests over the top of the roof, the guy gets swept away and he's drowned, right? Then he's standing before God and he's a little miffed. Like, pfft. I trusted you, I prayed to you. I knew you would save me, how come you did it? He's like, well, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter, what more do you want from me? (laughs) But see, what we want from him is we want the help that we expect in the package that we want instead of the package that he so graciously gives us. So be open to those that come to you when you're suffering. Be open to Timothy, even if he's not Paul. I don't know the avenue which God will come and comfort you 
the person he will send. It might be your pastor. It might be your small group leader. It might also be your husband. You need to be open to his input and anybody else that he sends. Don't let pain isolate you. In the 30 years I've been a pastor's wife, I can tell you that I've learned something very important and that it's never, ever a good sign when someone stops communicating with you. When they stop texting or calling or they go radio silent with you, that's never a good sign. It's not because they're doing great in the Lord that they're not talking to you. Don't isolate, don't cut yourself off. Yeah, you need time to grieve. I'll give you an hour or two. I'll give you a day or two tops. But if you go radio silent more than two days, uh uh-uh. You're like, wait, that's not fair. Okay, grieve with someone. They don't have to say anything. But just, you know, if all you can do is text them and say, I'm having a bad day, do that. Give them a chance to pray for you, to send you a verse, to reach out and help you. It's God's gift of the people to comfort and strengthen you that you're pushing away when you do this. You know, the Apostle Paul loved these people and so does the person who's reaching out to you in your persecution and your suffering. Let them help you, let them pray, let them hug, let them sit, let them speak to your heart. In verse two, it says that Timothy was sent to do two specific things, to establish and exhort you in your faith. To establish means to strengthen you. And that is the word that we see pictured when we think of the stakes that you put around the tree. You go to the gardening store and you buy a tree and you put stakes up and you wrap, I don't even know what you wrap because I don't know what I'm doing, but you wrap that stuff around it and you stake the tree. You do that to supply strength to that tree that the tree would not have without it. It's the same thing that Ur and um, Aaron did when they held up Moses' arms so that they could win the battle. It's something that's being supplied to you that you could not do on your own. Timothy was also sent, it says, to exhort or to comfort. This is the word to call alongside someone. And if that reminds you of the Holy Spirit, it should. It's exactly what the Holy Spirit is said to do to the Christian, to come alongside them. This is to comfort them. Yeah, you need the truth. You need someone telling you the truth when you're under pressure, but you also need someone giving you a big old hug. You need someone with skin on that will reach out, grab your hand, rub your back, and hand you Kleenexes when you need it. We need both. Well, God is great. Of course God is great, right? But he sends Paul and Silas and Timothys, and to us he sends, you know, Patties and Julies and Ashleys and Stephanies. That's who he sends to do this for you. But if you don't let people in, you're never gonna have those relationships. It's one of the reasons why things like women's Bible study and HFGs are so important because you're getting to know people face to face. It's also why women's retreat is so important. Just to be honest with you, if you did not go to women's retreat this year, you missed out. You missed out on the opportunity for the intangible that happens when sisters get together and get to spend 48 hours together. You missed the drive up and the drive back and all the funny jokes and the inside laughter that you had in that trip. You missed eating together. You missed the learning that we had, not just from the stage, but you list the learning that happened when people talked about what Ruth was doing to impact their lives through the questions, through the discussions that they had in their rooms. You missed laughter. And you missed that getting real that happens at 
you know, two o'clock in the morning. And you say, yeah, that's why I don't go. You know what? You missed out. It's two weeks later and we're all just fine. <laughs> we were fine the next day. And we got something that was so much more important. We built relationships in a relaxed atmosphere. Don't miss the next one. Make sure you have those relationships so that when you're under pressure, there are people to have input in your life. Some will say yes, but that's why I don't like people because they don't strengthen or comfort me. <laughs> they are miserable comforters, just like Job had. Well, I can't argue with you there because we've all been miserable comforters, haven't we? And we've all had miserable comforters, both ways. You ever said the wrong thing to someone who was hurting? You never not step up and do something when you know you should have when someone was hurting? We've all been miserable comforters. Gotta take that risk. Because on the other side of it, these women are a useful tool in the hand of the Almighty God to ease your pain and walk you through the darkness and help you out the other side. Their perspective, their objective perspective matters. I mean, avoiding people because you've had one bad experience is like saying, I had a bad hamburger, so I'm never gonna eat one again. That's ridiculous. Hamburgers are good, right? Even if you've had five bad ones, don't give up on them forever. <laughs> don't give up on people either. God uses Christians in our lives just like he used Timothy. We gotta be open to their input. And sometimes in the most intense and excruciating moments, all we wanna do is curl up in a ball and cry. That's when you gotta poke yourself in the chest and say, hey, self, knock it off. Get up. Listen to God. He says I'm supposed to be with people. He says I'm supposed to get to church. He says I'm supposed to sing worship songs. He says I'm supposed to be around others. I need to listen to God, and I need to get up, and I need to change. It's like brushing your teeth or doing your annual. You know, you just have to do it. I mean, come on. Just do it. If, if you're not in the pressure cooker right now, praise the Lord. And love on women who are. They need you. Reach out to them. Send them your prayers, your texts, your arms, your presence, and stake the tree for them. And if you are in the pressure cooker right now, then don't isolate yourself and let some people in. Don't expect them to read your mind. I mean, they don't know what it is that you need. Tell them what you need and give them grace when they don't do it perfectly because, hey, you don't either. But share with them that horrible conversation you had with your rebellious adult child last week. Share with them the pressure you have at work to go along with the flow. Share with them that friend that you've lost who thinks you're a Jesus freak. Tell them about the financial troubles that you have because you're not getting that promotion at work. Share with them how your husband says, it's me or God, and how they're handling that pressure situation. Be there for people. Don't shy away from them. Be open to their input. Well, as we pick up the passage in the verse three, sadly, it gets no better. I'm sorry to say, the whole thing is like this. Um, Verse three says that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 
Let's put the point down, then we'll talk about, I think, the toughest part of this whole thing, and that is when you're under pressure, point two, you need to remember God said it would be hard. Remember, God said it would be hard. Can't candy coat this, can't sugarcoat it, can't make it look better, it's just hard. Sometimes the best thing to do is just lay it all out there and get honest. So let me get honest with you, it's gonna be hard. Persecution is difficult. Um, Rejection is excruciating. It sucks when people oppose us because we're Christians. But knowing that helps us be more prepared, doesn't it? It's kind of like the hike we took at uh, retreat. We, why I say we, other people took at retreat. The afternoon hike that Sarah Averill takes us on, and she's a beast, you know, she's like a mountain goat. I love you, Sarah, <laughs> but you're just awesome. And not all of us are as awesome as you. And um, I have to say that there was a lot of buzz going around the retreat about the afternoon hike. Right? Everyone seemed to know about this really steep hill and they were all discussing the really steep hill. And uh, why did they do that? Because people had gone before them last year and they knew all about the steep hill and they were telling everyone how hard it was. But it helped our ladies this year to get ready. I mean, they had extra water, they had snacks, they had the right shoes, they even brought the right shoes with them so they could do the hike, you know? They had layers so they could take them all off and, you know, put them on as they needed to. I even heard of a splinter group, I won't say who it was, who knew the steep hill was coming and led a group another way. (laughs) Hey, that was a way to be prepared with the hard news, right? It's also the same reason that all of us appreciate those yellow signs on Highway 18 as we drive up there. Because you know what the signs tell us? What's coming around the bend? They warn us what's next. And you see, it's in that moment that I get to decide as the driver, what do I do now, right? Well, I decide to grip that wheel a little harder. I decide, even though I'm really thirsty, now is not the time to lean over and try to get a drink, right? That sign tells me it's time to keep my eyes peeled. And most importantly, it tells me it's time to slow down. Those warnings that this is gonna be hard, they help me prepare for what to do next. They're important. Having information is powerful. It's not supposed to make us fearful, it's supposed to make us faithful. Well, Paul didn't get a lot of time with these people. He probably only had a few weeks, but he didn't hide anything from them. They saw him limping in, they saw him rushing out, and they knew exactly what had happened to him, and he said, the same thing's gonna happen to you. That's what he says right here, the same thing's gonna happen to you. He's already said that in this book. In 1.6, he says, you received the word in much affliction. In 2.14, he says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And now everything he said has come to pass. They are being afflicted. That word is to be pressed hard. It's like what we do to grapes to make juice and wine out of them. We crush them, pulverize them is actually the word for affliction here. Pulverize. Paul says, I don't want you to be moved by these afflictions or this pulverizing. That word moved is really not a Bible word at all. You would find it much more often in Greek writings like Homer. It was the picture of a dog's tail wagging. Well, why does a dog's tail wag? To get your attention so that you'll do something for them. In the Greek mind, it was to fawn over you so that you could get what you wanted from someone. It was flattery. 
It was having an agenda. Paul did not want the troublemakers and the troublemaking to talk these young Christians into thinking or doing the wrong thing about Jesus Christ. He did not want them to abandon Christ because of the troublemakers or the troublemaking that was going on around them. Convincing them potentially to turn away from Christ was Paul's worst nightmare. See, Paul understood that pain could be leveraged to make us doubt that we're doing the right thing and that we're on the right road with Christ. In ancient Greece and Rome, there were tons of religious choices. If you didn't like this deity, there was another one right down the street, just go for that one. No big deal. This one's too hard, no trouble. Pick something else. Paul could not stand the idea of people pulling the Thessalonians away from the Lord. And in our DBR recently, we saw a perfect example of this, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, they're continually trying to get him to turn away from the God of Israel. He says, surrender to Babylon. And they rip up his writings and they basically kidnap him and they put him in a pit and they try to starve him, they take him to Egypt. They do all these things to try to move him. But his afflictions would not move him. He remained faithful to the God of Israel and so did the Thessalonians. Well, back in verse three, Paul says they were destined for trials. That means God had planned them out for them. And that gives us pause, but when you think through your Bible, you realize, hmm, that's exactly what they said would happen. Jesus said it. Here's a few places where he told us that suffering at the hands of non-Christians would happen. John 15, 20, it's where he said, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John 16, 33, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. In Matthew 10, 21 and 22, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and a father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all on my name. And um, then of course, Paul said it too. Even in Acts 14, when he's on these missionary journeys, it says he goes from church plant to church plant, strengthening them and telling them through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus never, God never promised us, Jesus never promised us life in a bubble like we happen to live right now in Orange County. No, he actually said you're going to be opposed and so are your children, all of your days. We just happen to live in this weird generation and culture that it has not been the case. It's very rare. I mean, throughout the church's existence, it's been persecuted. The first 300 years of its life, they were literally running away constantly. I mean, the first one to persecute them was Someone like Paul, the guy who wrote this letter. They were running from him first, and then Herod, and Nero, and Diocletian, and it just kept going and going and going. And even though things are a little bit different here right now in Orange County, um, I've heard a stat quoted just in September that says 80% of the population of the world do not enjoy religious freedom. 80%. The fact that you get the privilege to sit here and read your Bible freely and share the gospel, you're in the 20% in our world that has that and is not being persecuted for your faith like that. We are living behind enemy lines. Expecting that we're gonna have any different treat from them is absurd. We just happen to live in this little tiny bubble that doesn't have it right here, right now. Suffering for Christ is going to be something that happens till he comes back. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it's true. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We need to not get derailed by it when it's hard. We need to remember people in history like J.W. Tucker. J.W. Tucker was beaten. He had his hands tied behind his back and he was thrown into crocodile-infested waters in the Bakambi River in Congo with 60 other Christians in November 1964. 
And people were sad. They said, his life has been cut short. Don't you believe it? He's alive today and he will be forever. You see, God never promised us a happily ever after. No, he promised us much more than that. He promised us a happily forever after. J.W. Tucker was ready to give his life to share the gospel with people who were lost, even in a place he knew was full of civil war. He did it because he had already decided to take up his cross. He was already ready to die. In fact, his friends tried to talk him out of it. One particular friend talked to him before he left, and he said, if you go in, you won't come out. To which Tucker said, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. And you see, God tells us to go in, into the world and make a difference. Yeah, people are gonna pose, it's gonna be hard, but go in. Well, what do we do about when it hurts though? I mean, it hurts. Well, I think first we reflect and remember that we're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. People have been suffering for Christ forever, right? Jesus, the early church, the reformers, Christians across the globe, our neighbors down the street maybe, J.W. Tucker. There is a camaraderie in knowing we're not the only one. Then we need to look at all the good that happens when we go through suffering. Here's just a few things. James 1, 3, and 4 says we learn endurance and we mature through it. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says that we get God's comfort and learn to comfort others. Romans 8, 28 says God will work it for good. Matthew 5, 12 says that we are gathering rewards because we're being persecuted. 2 Corinthians 1.11 says that God gets glory when he answers prayer in our suffering. But I think Philippians 1.12 to 14 is one of my favorites because I think it's probably the most important byproduct of our suffering. It comes from Paul's own life and that is that our suffering helps other people become Christians. And he uses the example of his imprisonment, spreading the gospel all throughout the prison guard and that Christians were now bold to share the gospel because they had heard of his persecution. That's Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Well, before we move on to get out of this suffering is really hard part, I want you to turn to one passage, the only one I'm gonna ask you to turn to, and that's 2 Corinthians 8. It's a passage I never looked at quite the same until we started studying the Thessalonians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to learn that these Christians in Thessalonica suffered greatly. <sighs> long after Paul had been to see them and Timothy had been to see them and he'd written this letter. We know because of church history, but we also know because 2 Corinthians was written about six years after 1 Thess. And Paul is going to teach the Corinthians something by using the Thessalonians as an example. Verse one, 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Paul says to the Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Who are the churches of Macedonia? The Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Bereans, okay? I wanna teach you something by showing you the example of these three churches, okay? So I want you to know about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction. That means these people are still experiencing intense suffering six years later, ladies. In their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What he's trying to say is they have nothing, they're in severe pain, but they're super generous. They're making a collection for Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. 
and the Thessalonians, the Philippians, and the Bereans are giving all they've got to it. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They were uber generous, even though they had next to nothing. They're begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Even when Paul said, don't, you don't even have enough to live on. They said, no, no, we wanna give. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Talk about Adipat. These people put their money where their mouth was. They, they were potentially being blackmailed like Jason, blackballed crushed under the weight of affliction, and they could not wait to give to other Christians. They held nothing back, not their money, not their time, not themselves. And Paul is urging the uber-wealthy Corinthians to step up and be a little more like the Thessalonians in this situation. Life is hard, but they lived above it. They were under pressure, it was gonna be hard, but they knew the truth of 1 Peter 4.12, and they were not surprised by the fiery trial that came upon them to test them as though something strange was happening to them. Well, let's grab the last verse. Okay, because Paul is actually now gonna show his hand and he's gonna tell us the thing that he is most concerned about here in verse five. Verse five says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, Paul says, I sent to learn of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is near frantic here. He has to get Timothy there. And, and it's for one reason above all others. Yes, he loves them. Yes, he wants to strengthen them and comfort them. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, he knows it's so hard. But here's what he's most concerned about. He's most concerned that they will throw in the towel and decide not to be Christians anymore. He's most concerned that they will defect, that they will abandon Christ, that they will be apostates. This is serious. It's a serious temptation that he's concerned about. And that's where we see point three. When you're under pressure, you need to point three, see the seriousness of the temptation they faced. This is a particularly bad temptation. It is the biggest and baddest of them all. Paul is clear he wants to get Timothy there because he's afraid that Satan, the tempter, will make these people abandon their faith. I mean, that's the only way that you could say that your labor is in vain when you're planting a church is if people stop going. They stop showing up because someone has got to them and convinced them some ridiculous thing about, you know, Jesus is not real or he's ridiculous or some other such thing. That's what he's afraid of. It would be devastating to have the church plant fail because they had to close the doors because Christians were no more in Thessalonica. That's why this is so important. He didn't want Satan to convince them that God was not real. You see, Paul understood that Satan was alive and well and wanted to mess with people. Now, Paul is not concerned with the fourth soil kind of people. Um, I know you're well taught, you understand there are the parable of the four soils. The fourth soil was the real Christians. Paul is not concerned that the real Christians are going to stop being Christians, that they're gonna lose their salvation somehow, they're going to abandon Christ and defect. It's not gonna happen. John 10 says that nothing will ever snatch them out of his hand. Romans 8.30 says that those he chose, he justified, those he justified, he will glorify. No getting out of it. You can't even sin your way out of it. If you're really in, you're in for good. But he is concerned about the other three soils. Soil one, two, three. Soil one, two, and three, Paul does not want those people to walk out of the church 
in Thessalonica. The first soil, of course, are those that hear the word and then the evil one comes, the Bible says, and takes it away. They hear it, but they don't get it and they dismiss it right away. There were people like that sitting in the Thessalonian church. There are people like that in our church. Then there's soil number two. Soil number two was the one who um, was the rocky soil. And actually in this story, this is the one Paul's most concerned about because the rocky soil, they respond to Christ, they get all excited about him, and then they are derailed by testing and persecution and they bail out on Christ. Then there's the third soil. This was the thorny soil and this is the one they also respond to Christ. But then the pleasures and the riches of the world choke it out, the Bible says. And they fall away and they don't claim Christ anymore. This is who Paul's concerned about. The one who hears and doesn't get it, the one who's potentially going to be blown out by testing and trial, and the one who loves the world too much. Three kinds of people. Three kinds of people sat in the Thessalonian church. Three kinds of people sit here today. We don't know who you are. But two out of three of those kinds of people look exactly like the rest of us. Only one of them doesn't look like a Christian. Paul's concerned about those people defecting. We're concerned about those people defecting here. Paul doesn't want Satan to tempt you to turn away from Christ. He's reminding you how serious the temptation is and what's at stake. There's always a spiritual battle going on. Satan is at work in the church today. He is. God has allowed him to have some influence for a while. Not forever, not for much longer, but someday he'll be thrown into the lake of fire and he'll never have influence again. But that day is not today. Let's think of the ways that he has influenced people and gained a healthy respect. Adam and Eve, who had never sinned, had a perfect relationship with God, he succeeded in making them distrust God. Job, they tried to get Job to defect. Satan and his demons tempted Jesus multiple times, blinds the eyes of non-believers, disguises himself as apostle of light, tempts married folks to be unfaithful to their vows every day, persuaded Judas to betray Christ. He even tempted Peter, the head of the church, to resist God's plan, to cower in fear, to betray him, to wallow in guilt, and to eventually pull himself out of the game. And he was the head guy. Satan has influence. Worst of all, the Bible says that Satan has planted weeds among the wheat. Christians and non-Christians side by side in the church. <sighs> we don't know who they are. Apostasy is a big problem. It's a real temptation, in particular when lots of persecution's going on. See, in Thessalonica, pretty soon, it was only gonna take a little pinch of incense and one sentence vow to Caesar, Caesar's Lord, and they would have immunity from all persecution. And Paul's afraid that they will choose peace and safety over their allegiance to Christ. But it would cost them everything if they did that. And he doesn't want you to be tempted to choose peace and walk out of the church either before you get it right. I don't want that either. If you're sitting here in your soil one, two, or three, you're the only one who knows that, besides God, of course. Um, I would just beg you to stay. 
stay. Be a part of this group, these amazing women that you can build relationships with, the amazing kids men we have, the amazing programs. Soak up all the goodness, and Lord willing, soon you're gonna surrender your life to Christ. Stay with us, I beg you. Don't leave us. Remain until you become a Christian, and of course, afterwards too. We know that not everyone here is a Christian. We know that because the Bible teaches it, but we also know it because every time we have baptisms, don't you hear the same thing I do? I came to this church for so long and then I finally got it, right? I did Partners chapter one and I went, whoa, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. So it's like amazing how long people come before they get it. Keep coming. We want to woo you until you're in the family of Christ. We welcome you. We're so glad to have you. But we will tell you that we're always gonna be concerned about this. So we're always gonna keep talking about what a real relationship with God looks like, and it's not the answers to the questions. A real relationship with God means that you're able to look behind you and see a changed life from the time you decided to follow Christ. Your life looks different. Not on the outside necessarily, although it probably will, but your life is different because you're motivated from something different on the inside and it makes your life change. But a lot of people, remember two of these three are said to be Christians. They look like they've conformed from the outside. You gotta conform from the inside. So we're also going to tell you without apology, continue to tell you that we all have to examine ourselves to make sure we're really in this thing. We're gonna talk about a changed life and we're gonna talk about examining yourselves without apology. So we wanna make sure we're all in. Well, even though Paul couldn't be with them, he sent Timothy, and I bet there's something else he did to keep this defection from happening. And I bet he prayed. I know this passage doesn't say that, but we know about Paul. We know that in chapter one, he talks about praying them, and next week he's gonna talk about praying for them. I'm sure he was praying for them, and I'm praying for you that you don't defect until you become a Christian, <laughs> that you don't leave this place. You don't bail out on our church because it's too restrictive or God's rules are too hard or we're too into the Bible or we're always asking you whether you're really a Christian or not, don't leave. I'm gonna beg God that you stay because I want you to get saved. But there are fourth soils here. What about the rest of us? Satan is not tempting us to bail out completely. Well, he can still have influence on our lives and we need to be ready. We need to be aware of his schemes and we need to keep our feet firmly planted so that we can fight him. It was never more important than October 3rd, 2003. That was the night that Roy Horn, um, well, he turned 59 years old and he celebrated with a thousand friends. And then he went out on a stage and he did his show for 1,500 people, his show with all of his exotic animals and one particular six-year-old white male tiger. Now, Roy Horn had done this show hundreds of times. The only thing that was different that night was Roy slipped. That's it. He slipped. And that was the point the tiger lunged at him, grabbed him by the neck, and dragged him off the stage. Well, the guys in the back were able to get the fire extinguishers and get the tiger off of their owner. And they did surgery on him, they saved his life. He'd been doing it for 35 years. He never had an incident like that. The only thing that was different was he lost his footing. That's all the tiger needed to pounce. That's all Satan needs to pounce, ladies. Don't lose your footing. Be firmly planted in him. Satan wants to influence you, there's no doubt about it. 
He wants you to keep your eyes off Christ. He wants you to love the world more than him. Um, he wants you to keep your mouth shut. He wants to make you a hypocrite so that you ruin your testimony. He wants to make you wallow in guilt so that you'll stay out of the game and you won't serve him anymore. He wants all those things. We can't get bowled over by him or think that there's a demon under every rock. This is not what I'm asking you to do. I just want you to have a healthy respect for him. And I want you to think about planting your feet in your Christianity. How do I do that? You stay alert. You stay in the word. You cement yourself to the sisters in this room. You keep showing up here. You watch the intake that you allow into your life. And you guard against his schemes. And you learn and know and practice verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which tells us that there is not one single temptation that you face that is unique, that is irresistible, that there isn't a way out of. Don't believe Satan when he says that, oh, you're the only one. You have to give in. It's not true. It's not true. You don't. And remember truths like 1 Peter 5, 8. Our best defense against Satan is this verse. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. May he not take out another victim from Compass Bible Church because we're praying that people won't defect and we're planting our feet firmly because we see the seriousness of the temptation and of Satan's lure. Well, Shut Sports is a major supplier of football helmets for the NFL. But if you were to go to their website, like I did yesterday, you would find an interesting thing. The minute you click on their website, a warning page comes up. And here's what it says. Warning. No helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. And then it says a whole bunch of stuff about how to spot the symptoms of a real concussion and what to do about it. And at the bottom it says, to avoid risks, do not engage in the sport of football. <laughs> and then you have to continue and you, as you read down, you cannot purchase, you cannot research, you cannot even look at a helmet until you click the box that says, please indicate you have read and understood this message. Click. Then you, can, you get to open it up and see what's for sale. Wow. That shut sports company, they are serious about you knowing the risks of football. They're laying it all out there. They're being honest with you about the dangers of what you're about to do. Our Bible is no different. It's telling you flat out the risks that, it, that they're associated with following Christ. There's no hidden thing here. Right there, the warning label comes right at you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You wanna be godly, you wanna be holy, you wanna be in with Christ, you wanna walk with him, you're gonna face painful persecution. Hopefully though, I pray that Paul has given you some help today and that you'll be ready to take the input of others and you'll know it's hard ahead of time so it won't bowl you over and that you'll realize how serious the temptation is and how important it is for you to fight it the next time that you get sucked into a wave of persecution. Let's pray.
Jesus, I first just wanna thank you because I know everything we said today was really sobering. And um, yet there's sometimes like that when we need the warnings and the sober reminders. But I wanna thank you that we are never alone. I wanna thank you that even though it's hard and sobering, that we do win. We win. We're the ones who will be safe forever. But thank you, God, that even though we might not be safe here on earth from our non-Christian counterparts, that nothing that happens to us, even in our persecution, escapes your notice. (sighs) Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that we're perfectly taken care of by a loving Father. I do pray, Lord, for my sisters here that they would be open to the input of others. That's a hard one. Um, We don't want to open up. We don't want to share. We don't want to be known Help us to be vulnerable like that. Help us not to just curl up in a ball because it's hard. Help us to remember it's been hard for centuries. And they did this, we can do this. And help us to really, well, examine ourselves to make sure we are with you. Pray for each other to hang in there until we know for sure they're saved. And stand firm against the schemes of Satan in our lives. Thank you, God, for this church, and thank you for the groups that I know will happen even right now and the support and the relationships that will occur between these ladies. Make it sweet, but make it lasting and important so that the relationships are built and so they're there for one another when they land under pressure next time. We love you, Jesus, and we wanna serve you well. In your name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.